As Michigan's most powerful and influential voice for business, the Michigan Chamber of Commerce stands ready to serve you. Whether advocating at the Capitol on your behalf or helping connect you to people and resources that can help, add your voice to ours. Make My Chamber your chamber today. Go to mychamber.com, that's M-I-C-H-A-M-B-E-R.com to learn more now. I'm asking for justice. I'm asking for justice. I'm asking for justice. I'm asking for justice for Patrick. Justice for Patrick. It's been several weeks since 26-year-old Patrick Leoya, a Congolese refugee, was fatally shot by a white Grand Rapids police officer. Stay in the car. Stay in the car. Get in the car. Dude, I'm stopping you. Do you have a license? Video footage released by police shows that in an interaction at about 8 a.m. April 4th, an officer told Leolia his license plate didn't match his car. They ended up in a struggle on the ground over the officer's taser. The officer yelled, let go of the taser several times just before he shot Leolia in the back of the head. Now, the Reverend Al Sharpton is in Michigan for Patrick Leolia's funeral. An investigation is underway, and activists are calling for change, saying his death is yet another example of a black man dying at the hands of police. And what's more, some have said it was inevitable, given the history of Grand Rapids and the history of policing in it. One of the speakers, he said, we have been warning you about uh, GRPD's excessive force since 2020, since the protests over the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Grand Rapids prided itself on being a little more polite than that. You know, the racism is there just like in any other community, but they wouldn't say it to your face, sort of. The police had already pulled out guns on kids in Grand Rapids that that had been noted, handcuffing 11 year olds. On this episode, we look into the concerns in Michigan's second largest city, what it's been like, and what came before the death of Patrick Leolia. I'm Carrie Jr. the second, and this is On the Line. Uh, well, first off, thanks for for taking the time to do this. I know you've been a, it's been a busy couple of weeks for you. You were out late covering protests, and you've been covering a lot of few a lot of things in these last few weeks. So I just checking in. Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. It's definitely uh, a lot. It's really fast paced. That's Free Press reporter Arpan Lobo. He's based in Grand Rapids and typically covers politics. He's been covering the death of Patrick Leolia as of late, and he called in to give some context to what's going on. And what have you been seeing over these last few days? Yeah, these protests, uh, the ones I've been to, they've ranged from maybe around 50, 60 people to several hundred people uh, marching through the streets of downtown Grand Rapids. One of the uh, streets that uh, demonstrators have marched on was actually renamed Breonna Taylor Way in 2020 because uh, she was born in, in Grand Rapids. And uh, their message has been been clear. They want justice for Patrick. And for them, 
This means that the, uh, the officer involved in the shooting is, is named, the officer involved in the shooting gets charged, and that the Grand Rapids Police Department uh, addresses what people think is a culture of excessive force. They think that was what happened to Patrick and that if it weren't for this excessive force, he might not have been killed. It's loud, but you you can tell that there's kind of a bit of, of underlying pain uh, from the protesters as they march, as they chant. And I know the officer is yet to be named and is on paid leave, but what's the status of any official investigation into Patrick's death? The uh, Grand Rapids Police Department has referred uh, everything to the Michigan State Police, which is currently conducting its investigation. The MSP has said that they are placing this at higher priority, kind of given the uh, scrutiny the incident is under. So we don't have a timeline, though, of when this investigation will be complete and if and when uh, anything will come of it. What's been the response from community members that weren't at the protest? Yeah, city leaders, I believe uh, city manager Mark Washington, who is black, uh, mentioned, he goes, it's another incident we have where a black man loses his life at the hands of a police officer. And what Washington said was that it would be totally understandable for people to, uh, you know, show their emotion through these demonstrations and protests. Uh, Chief Winstrom has been with the GRPD for only about a, a little more than a month now. And so he was saying during that Wednesday press conference when they released the footage, he was just saying how difficult of a situation this was for the department. And how has Patrick's family responded? Uh, you know, expectedly, it's been very, very tough for them. They are uh, Congolese refugees, uh, so English is not their first language. They held a press conference uh, with, with Ben Crump and with uh, another lawyer, uh, just through a translator, they were expressing their, you know, kind of unimaginable grief. And I see this officer fighting with my son. My heart is broken. One, one thing that's kind of stuck out to me is, is Patrick's mother, through, through a translator, she said, you know, we left uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo because we thought we were escaping violence and persecution only for uh, her son to end up dying uh, in the United States. So it's it's been a very tough, uh, obviously a very tough uh, time for that family uh, and, and those close to them. Now I want to get a, a better understanding of the community, whether that it's socially, politically, and economically. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about what the social political makeup is of Grand Rapids? Yeah, Grand Rapids is probably best known for a few of its like famous families. Uh, if you go to downtown Grand Rapids, you'll see two names uh, in a lot of places, and those names are DeVos. As in the former U.S. Secretary of Education. And Van Andel. Co-founder of the Amway Corporation with Betsy DeVos's father-in-law. The major industries in Grand Rapids are things like uh, furniture, like Steelcase, uh, is based in uh, Grand Rapids. And so there is a lot of working class individuals that, that kind of work and live in the city. I think it's kind of like a microcosm of a lot of uh, Midwestern cities that, there, that while there are some areas that maybe uh, could use a bit more attention, there are other areas that are getting a lot of growth. It's about 200,000 people. The majority of Grand Rapids residents are white. Uh, I think 18% is the exact figure 
uh, for the percentage of, of black residents. Uh, there's also other communities uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And in the political makeup, where do they fall on the, on the scale? The city of Grand Rapids proper generally votes uh, in favor of Democrats, but Kent County as a whole where Grand Rapids is, is kind of, uh, it's, it's a bit more um, split along those lines. Grand Rapids does kind of serve as a Democratic base, but when you think of West Michigan, generally it's considered a, uh, a Republican or red part of the state. Sometimes I feel like, uh, you know, we know, when people think of Michigan, they know Detroit and, and, and they'll say Flint for various different reasons. But sometimes I feel like people sleep on Grand Rapids. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. That's Alex Forrest, VP of Curatorial and Collections at the Grand Rapids Public Museum. Recently, in the in the past decade or so, I think, you know, Grand Rapids has started to turn some heads, you know, making some of those lists uh, that people put out, you know, good places to live, good places to raise a family, um, you know, housing tends to be maybe a little bit more affordable here than in uh, Southeast Michigan sometimes. Um, and all those beautiful Lake Michigan beaches are, are close by. So um, the, the word's getting out. In order to better understand the Grand Rapids Arpan was describing, we wanted to get a better historical perspective of Michigan's other big city. So we spoke to two historians, including Alex, who lives in the area, roughly a mile away from the shooting, he told us. Walk us through uh, briefly the founding of Grand Rapids. People have been coming to the Grand River for thousands and thousands of years. The, the Anishinaabe people who um, you know, lived in Michigan long before any uh, European settlers uh, we're here in the early 1800s when settlers first started coming. Um, the natural resources of the region were definitely uh, part of it. When does Black history in Grand Rapids begin? Well, like it begins when the state of Michigan begins, right? That's Randall Maurice Jelks, author of the book African Americans in the Furniture City, The Struggle for Civil Rights in Grand Rapids. More for him after the break when we get into troubling Grand Rapids history, police pulling guns on teens, and some of the reform measures that came before Patrick Leoya. As Michigan's leading statewide business advocacy organization, the Michigan Chamber of Commerce is on the job every day standing up for job providers in the legislative, political, and legal arenas. We are the unified voice of thousands of members who employ over one million Michiganders. We work with trade associations and local chambers of commerce of every size and kind in all 83 counties of the state. We know business in Michigan. Learn more today about how we can protect, connect, and strengthen your business. Whether that's advocating on your behalf at the Capitol, helping meet your informational training and networking needs, or boosting your bottom line visibility and voice, we're on the job for you. Make my chamber your chamber. Go to mychamber.com, that's M-I-C-H-A-M-B-E-R.com, to learn more now. Grand Rapids is uh, founded as a city in 1850. Uh, there are already documented people, free people of color, all in the, in the area as farmers and other things. 
We're back with Randall Maurice Jokes, a professor of African, African American, and American Studies at the University of Kansas. He previously taught at Calvin College in Grand Rapids and wrote a book on the struggle for civil rights in the area. He also still has family there. When the first industry becomes established in Grand Rapids, uh, how does that tie into the history of, of African Americans in, in Grand Rapids? Post-Civil War, the manufacturers are eager to cut down the, the hardwood forests and make furniture. And black men and women who came to the, the area uh, worked in, uh, you know, barrel making uh, a factory uh, and cut down trees. One of the things that we do know, um, thanks to the work of some of the historians who've written about the history of race in Grand Rapids, is that there was what was called a gentleman's agreement among the furniture factory owners in Grand Rapids not to hire black workers. Alex Forrest again of the Grand Rapids Public Museum. Uh, they worked um, in the hospitality industry, in hotels, in department stores. And the black population remained small in Grand Rapids uh, until uh, just after World War II uh, because there are no industries really inviting them. As black people come from the South for various places for their own economic interests, the first thing that Grand Rapids does is hire a few black police officers to be the guardians of their communities, meaning keep your people in the neighborhood. Don't let the bad guys come into town. So just like Detroit, Grand Rapids uh, suddenly has this influx of black people for 1945, 1950s, 60s. They're all coming from the deep south, mainly from Mississippi. They come in um, before the World War begins and after, and they, they work for GM. Uh, it was an auto industry, and that really carries a lot of Black folks to, to work. And so how did that diversification go over? What have been, in addition to the challenges you've already outlined in terms of access to certain jobs, what other challenges um, did minority groups um, encounter? One of the stories that we tell there is about the development of a neighborhood in Northeast Grand Rapids called Auburn Hills that was put together by four African-American individuals, just an average middle-class neighborhood built in the 1960s because before then, Grand Rapids, once again, like most other cities in the United States, um, had a pretty restrictive uh, redlining process. Um, another very contentious time in Grand Rapids, like in other places, uh, is the late 1960s when kind of the, the very nice public high school in that neighborhood called South High uh, was closed as a point of pride. It was where Gerald R. Ford, president of the United States, had gone to school, you know, good sports teams. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's gone. Many African-American students who went to school there were then bused to other high schools around Grand Rapids. And that caused uh, all kinds of um, dissension uh, and was one of the things that led to what's called the uprising or sometimes the riots in Grand Rapids, which took place in 1967. There's uh, a, a riot in over a hundred cities. Grand Rapids also has a what is called a riot or urban rebellion, or whatever you wanna to choose to call it, uh, in response to um, being hassled by police, um, being uh, challenged by uh, urban renewal, you know, 
Grand Rapids, black communities got cut in half just as as did uh, Detroit. Uh, and the police were particularly, as more black people came into the city, uh, more and more, quote unquote, tough on crime. Um, and so how has that struggle evolved over time? And, and how does that bring us to today? Can you fill in that gap? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean, when I came to Grand Rapids in 1983, we were working toward a, a model of working with communities using crime prevention coordinators. The, the idea was not law enforcement to keep corral us, but law enforcement to help people uh, navigate uh, uh, troubled incidents, police uh, uh, increase because the war on drugs uh, allowed it uh, to increase. And so uh, it, it became more, it, the relationship between police community became more and more hostile. It's where I leave sort of my my scholarly knowledge and, and go more into, into my, my own personal lived experience growing up in, in Grand Rapids. And I think that it's just sort of this cascade of disinvestment in certain communities, certain neighborhoods, and certain areas of the city that went on for decades. I think it just it just builds and builds over time. And and now I think that um, you know, in contrast to some of those um sort of nice gung-ho articles that you see about um you know Grand Rapids is this great place to raise a family. I've started to see a few say unless you're black. Look, a young black person with a college degree will find it very difficult to find a uh, a job in corporate industry in Grand Rapids. This is the question I get all the time. Um, why that why would I want to stay uh, in a place that uh, is uh, constantly locking me out? I do want to ask about the refugee community. Like, has Grand Rapids historically had a, a large refugee community there? Yeah, the refugee history in Grand Rapids really began when Gerald Ford became uh, president after Richard Nixon resigned office. And because the war in Vietnam was ending, uh, Gerald Ford used uh, lots of different agencies in, in the Grand Rapids area to help resettle Vietnam, Vietnamese refugees. And this has now become a Grand Rapids is, is seen as a model uh, kind of city for re- resettling various people from parts of the world uh, in the city. But as we've noted, more recently, minority groups have reported concerns in Grand Rapids, particularly when it comes to policing. And for more on that, we turn back to Free Press reporter Arpan Lobo. Arpan, can you walk us through some specifics of the recent concerns before Patrick Leoya's death? Yeah. So I talked to Ven Johnson, who's an attorney that's representing the Leoya family. Uh, he's also representing someone else in federal court that during 2020 protests over the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, uh, the protests that took place in Grand Rapids, there was an incident. It's a bit of a viral video. You might have seen it, but in, in the incident, there's a man. He's kind of standing in front of a group of Grand Rapids Police Department officers, and he's taunting them, he, but he's not making any physical threats. But the one of the officers fired a tear gas canister at him, and, and Johnson said it hit him in the shoulder. Um, Johnson said it's examples like that that kind of show a culture of excessive force within the police department. 
And I understand there's been other incidents, such as one in 2017 with an 11-year-old girl uh, getting handcuffed and a Marine veteran wrongfully being turned over to immigration in 2018. Also, we've heard others with guns being drawn on teens of color. There have been other incidents of the the police department's kind of conduct uh, coming under criticism. Uh, in 2019, the Michigan Department of Civil Rights opened an investigation to see whether there was a, a pattern and practice of misconduct uh, with uh, people of color and if they were being treated uh, at, a, at a disparate rate uh, by the police department. That investigation was ultimately never finished. Uh, the Department of Civil Rights said that they didn't have the resources to do it. They are still uh, looking at 29 individual uh, complaints against the Grand Rapids Police Department just this week. There's been an effort from the Department of Civil Rights uh, to see if the AG's office in particular uh, can bring more resources to get this investigation uh, back to life. Anything else we should know? Uh, One thing I think I can mention is that I remember in June of 2020, uh, City Manager Mark Washington sent the mayor, Rosalind Bliss, a memo kind of outlining this laundry list of different uh, reforms and accountability measures that the police department was going to take. And and these include, you know, bumping up the hours of de-escalation training, uh, making sure that officers are trained to put themselves in a situation where they aren't even close to, uh, you know, a person. And one thing that I asked and I didn't get an answer from the department on was like, where where did this, you know, kind of go missing? Because if you just look at that list of items and then you look at the, the footage of of uh, the interaction where Patrick was shot by a police officer, you see that there's not really um, a lot of de-escalation efforts taken. And I think people will point to, well, it's a difficult situation. You know, if you're if you're ever in that scenario, you don't know what exactly a person could have. You don't know everything about the situation, but I think that when protesters in particular talk about, you know, that interaction, there's just this feeling that, you know, a shooting could have been avoided. The world's eyes are on Grand Rapids. What would you say to them about what they need to know about Grand Rapids? I think that in many ways, um, you know, Grand Rapids is a microcosm of any other city. Historian Alex Forrest where any other of the, you know, too many killings by police have taken place. And so, you know, it's kind of a pessimistic uh, note to end on, I think, but it's, it's, it's just a sad situation. Like, you know, the, the broad strokes are the same anywhere you look. What's shocking for the people of Grand Rapids, Randall Maurice jokes, is that their perception of themselves is that this is not our best self. Right. That that. But I'm arguing here, this has always been inevitable because city leaders, economic leaders and all other people refuse to uh, deal with the kind of national problem uh, that we have this society of separate separate societies uh, going on. And as long as the country refuses to do with that, even a place like Grand Rapids is going to face these issues. Did you speak with your family when this happened? You, oh, of course. What? What? I mean, yeah, I, I imagine. But yeah, yeah. what was that yeah, conversation? My, my, like? my, my son's a business owner downtown. I have a son and daughter uh, uh, and wife who was a former city official uh, in Grand Rapids. So yeah, we all spoke. You know, because this this was uh, this was. Uh, Horrible. 
And what what was some of the feelings you all had? Well, I mean, of course, of course, you know, I can't, I won't, won't speak for them because they're the adults. But I think we generally consider this is not this, not now. It, it's a real setback to trying to get get people at the table. Uh, it's a, a real setback to uh, trying to uh, figure out new strategies for uh, making the city more inclusive uh, for everybody. Thank you to Randall Jokes, Alex Forrest, and Free Press reporter Arpan Lobo for their time. This episode was produced by me and Darcy Moran with help from Adrian Roberts. Anjanette Delgado and Marianne Streeman are our executive producers, and Peter Batia is our editor. The music for the show is called Fort Trumbull and was produced by DJ Lost Boy. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a comment, like, subscribe, uh, and don't forget to share it with your friends and family. See you next week. <laughs>